Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy with simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Rapunzel creates excitement and encourages financial education. Check out their free mobile app and the interviews of Brian and Miles in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Patrick, we've done most of our tapings when we're not in the field at the Waveland Island Studios. Right. On the north side of Chicago. Mm Mm-hmm. Which has been great, except during the Chicago Air and Water Show. We left the windows open. It was a nice August day, but there's a little bit of street noise, L, cicadas, and jets yeah, from yeah. the air show, because yeah. it was that Saturday of the Chicago yeah, air that's show. That's right. I remember that. So okay. a little ambient noise in this recording. Okay. Welcome to the Windy City Historians <laughs> podcast, David. If Thank you. You would be so kind. Thanks for joining us yeah. and introduce us yourself and give us your full name and okay. background. Uh, David Daruska, and I am a retired locomotive engineer. Worked at uh, four or five different railroads through my illustrious career. I am also the vice president and program coordinator for the Blackhawk chapter of the National Railway Historical Society. And part of one of the things that we are doing as a historical society is trying to enthuse people about the idea of the 175th anniversary of the first train operated out of Chicago. Wow, 175th, that's a pretty significant milestone. Yeah, it is. The 150th passed with no uh, nothing. No fanfare. No fanfare. The 100th was a big deal. And we got the trains in the background, so it's rather appropriate. Yeah. So in 1830, Illinois began a program of internal improvements to open the prairie mm-hmm. to agriculture and settlement. It failed. <laughs> <laughs> Government program. Huh? Back up for a yeah. second. So when was the first train in Chicago? When was the first train? It was well, 1848. Actually, maybe back up a little bit more. Let's put it in perspective. Wasn't the first train in the United States, wasn't it the Baltimore and Ohio? Baltimore and Ohio. And actually it was a question on one of the TV shows. We were watching oh, last night. Okay. And what I'm, I'm guessing. It was like in 1830s. Okay. 13 miles a track. That was their first. It, was that it? Yeah. Okay. And how, how fast would a locomotive go? Probably 20 miles an hour. If, if at that much. Okay. So then fast forward 20 some years and you have Chicago's train. Well, the Eastern railroads were already building out, but they weren't coming to the Midwest. They were all focused along the Eastern seaboard. And I know that Charles Carroll one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence helped lay the golden spike is because he was from Maryland. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Baltimore and Ohio, that, that's where it right. started in Maryland. He was like the only living member left. Yeah. The only reason I know that is supposedly I'm related to him. <laughs> okay. Although there's no money involved because he was a rich guy and I haven't seen any cash. <laughs> <laughs> so 1848 is yeah. the first train in Chicago. That's the engine, the Pioneer, that's Pioneer, at the Chicago History Museum. Right. Right? Right. Now, William Ogden, the first mayor of Chicago, he, it was his idea. Right. Him and a gentleman called J. Young Scammon. Hmm. 
the two partners. And <laughs> sounds like a very trustworthy uh, yeah. name. <laughs> hey, 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 scamming. You want to sign these papers? <laughs> right. Buy some stock from me. What's your name, sir? Scamming. Uh, scamming. No worries. You know. Yeah. That's right. So they couldn't get any financing from the Eastern money people. So what they did was they went out to the farmers and said, we're building a railroad out towards you. We're going to be able to bring your goods to market. Can you help? Right. And so farmers, farm wives were using their egg money to buy stock in the railroad. And that's how it was financed. Yeah. And yeah. the original thought it was going to run to the lead mines in Galena because that's where all the money was. Sure. Now, 1848 is an interesting year in Chicago because that's the year of the, the exchange, I believe, that opened, and also the canal. Was right. Exchange. What's exchange? The mercantile exchange? Mercantile exchange. Okay. And the canal was finished. Oddly enough, guess who was involved in the canal? I Ogden. Canal. Yep. Oh, Ogden. There you go. So he kind of said, hey, you know what? Uh, you know. <laughs> Playing both sides. Yeah, right. Well, he did quite a bit of development around Chicago. I right. mean, he dug two canals in addition to that collateral canals, one that created Goose Island. He was yeah. part of that land speculation deal. And then also what's now called the Michigan Canal, just north of the mouth of the Chicago River. So we're talking about locomotives. Explain to us what this first Pioneer train looked like. Well, here's a picture right here. It basically had two lead trucks that were unpowered and one single powered wheel. So when you say lead trucks, those are the two steel wheels. That yeah. That's one the, truck right. on each side. Right. And how, okay. to the untrained eye, how long would this train have been, this locomotive? It couldn't haul more than a few cars. Okay. And the actual engine was, I mean, was it the size of a, like a... The size of a bus. A bus? Yeah. Okay. And coal-powered, obviously? Yeah. It was actually built in 1837 by the Baldwin Locomotive Works for a railroad out east in New York. So it was only 10 years old when Chicago got right. it. Right, and, and what there was worked out there is the alert, and then it was brought here by ship. It was purchased and brought here by ship, and then it was renamed the Pioneer. Mm -hmm. And uh, the track was laid as far west as today's Oak Park. Ironically, it was built the year Chicago became incorporated, yeah. 1837. Kind of a twist. And the locomotive lasted a long time in service. Once it was surpassed by larger locomotives, they used it on work trains. Mm. And there's pictures of it. They're out there somewhere laying track or building a bridge. And there's the Pioneer. Working away. Working away. And the Northwestern did refurbish it for the Chicago Railroad Fair in 1947. So it was actually oh, under wow. steam. And it was out on the lakefront moving back and forth as part of their, they had these shows, different, you know, historic shows. Oh, so 99 years later, it was still in service yeah, and being was, used. Yep. That's amazing. I wonder if there's any video like on YouTube. Of oh, yeah. Oh, cool. Chicago Railroad Fair. Look up Chicago Railroad Fair. Okay. Okay. We'll and and you'll see all kinds of stuff. And if you want to see this Pioneer Railroad engine, it is at the Chicago History Museum as one of their main exhibits. Right, in the basement. It's down there with the first powered elevated car. Now, did Stephen Douglas have anything to do with the railroads? The Illinois Central. Between 1850 and 1853, no less than three new railroads began and completed construction. There was the Aurora Branch, which became the Burlington, mm -hmm. now the BNSF, the Rock Island, which is no longer in existence, and the Illinois Central. And the Rock Island, because of the Rock Island arsenal for the military, right? That was the main reason that was one of the destinations. Yeah. It's out on the Mississippi. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And there's some bridge history there too. There was like an important bridge that was built there to connect a swing bridge. It was one of the first across the Mississippi. And there was some, I want to say some legal wrangling between the steamships. Yeah, that was and and the railroads. Abraham Lincoln was involved with that case. I believe, yeah. Yeah, railroad Yeah, the the bridge across the Mississippi. But uh, in 1851, the state chartered the Illinois Central and selected a consortium of Eastern capitalists to construct and own the railroad. And federal land grants of nearly 2,600,000 acres provided the economic incentive and the initial investment of 27 million came largely from British and Dutch interests. Oh, interesting. Foreign investment in the Illinois Central, I had no idea. Yeah, the Illinois Central was chartered by the General Assembly on February 10th of 1851. Uh, Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln were both Illinois Central men who lobbied for it. Douglas owned land near the terminal in Chicago and Lincoln was a lawyer for the railroad. Now, so originally, something they could agree on, potentially. Yeah, right. The thing with the IC was is it was never intended to come to Chicago. And, oh, really? Yeah, and Douglas said, hey, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you an easement to run your railroad tracks through my property, and that's how it got to Chicago. Because I think Cincinnati was going to get it. I, I'm not sure if Cincinnati. I know Cairo was, of course, the big deal at the time, the big city. So the, the initial line from the Illinois Central, where was that running? Was that running along the Mississippi? I, I know they end up spidering out, so it's hard yeah. to say, maybe. you got to think of a song, Patrick. What's that? The city of New Orleans, you know. Coming out of Kankakee. Yeah. Okay. So well, it's like straight down. Yeah, Yeah. It was, it was a straight shot down south. Yeah, okay. As far south as New Orleans. Yeah. So then the conjunction of having Douglas offer that easement, and then did that also lead to them building those tracks on the trestle across the... Yeah, yeah the, in 1851, the IC made an offer to the city to exchange for allowing the tracks to be laid along the lakefront the railroad company would pay for and build a breakwater to protect the harbor. Illinois was officially granted 3 million acres of shoreline along Lake Michigan to create a north-south railroad under wow. the state charter. What happened was railroad literally took their land grant to heart and started filling in the lake and building more land for themselves. Yeah. And it was a huge controversy, and eventually the legislature repealed the Lakefront Act in 1873. But by then, the, the IC had taken all this land over. Yeah. And I've seen photographs of these trestles in the water, and quite frankly, I mean, to a modern viewer, it's kind of appalling. <laughs> this is your lakefront, which is like a, a rail yard. Beautified it or and imagine you're talking coal burning, you know, oh, black yeah. smoke belching uh, right. locomotives running back and forth across there. And that was the impetus for the electrification of suburban service, the IC ah. suburban service, because it was just so many steam locomotives working in and out of the central station. Yeah. There's a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago called Grand Crossing. Yes. yes, I've heard of it, but I don't know anything about it. Well, Grand Crossing was the crossing point between the Illinois Central and the Lake Shore and Michigan Southern. Mm-hmm. And at one time, it was called the most dangerous crossing in the world. It was an at-grade crossing with no signals. All they had were little gates that were put across the tracks. Wow. As an engineer, your job would be if the gate was closed, you could not move until a switch tender came out and opened it up for you. Well, even prior to that, when the first two railroads were built across each other, 
the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern was the first. And the Illinois Central wanted to build their tracks across them, and they refused them, Lakeshore and Michigan Southern. Mm -hmm. So the IC came out in the middle of the night and got the security guard drunk and built their tracks across the across the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern tracks. So the intersecting two railroad lines, yeah. major lines, right, right there. Right. Wow. So and it was an unprotected grade crossing. Nothing. No yeah. flagmen. No nothing. So on April twenty fifth, eighteen fifty three, there was a huge wreck there. Mm -hmm. The first the first railroad wreck in Chicago. The way the crossing worked was it was first come first serve. The first train there would get right over to, to cross over. Well, what the engineers would do is speed up and try to be the first course, one there. right. So that night, it didn't quite work out as it, they intended, and they had a wreck and 21 people died in the area. Oh and what God. year was that again? Uh, 1853. Okay. Oh, God. my God. So it'd be like a, a locomotive chicken. Yeah. I was just thinking of Casey Jones. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. no. Wow. Casey Jones is in the story, too. Oh, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> So at, at that point, they started doing more to protect that crossing. Eventually, it was elevated. Mm -hmm. One railroad was elevated over oh, the yeah. other. It's still called Grand Crossing. It's actually a neighborhood. It's, there's a stop there. When did that get elevated then? Uh, probably in the 20s. Okay. so It, it took, was a big project. So it took about 70 years. It was a big happened. project, yeah. And were there other major accidents at that crossing then? No, was that, there was but, nothing after that. Okay. But just for efficiency's sake, they elevated. Now, the railroad that was elevated over it, it's still there. It's the Norfolk and Southern now uh -huh. runs trains over there. And the Metro Electric still runs right. underneath. Right. Wow. The stockyards came about because of the railroads right around the Civil War. That's right. They needed a better way of processing meat, and so they created this central location, incorporated all these separate stockyards that were scattered around the city into one central area. And there were like four railroads involved in getting that started. And Chicago then, again, you know, tying back to Archibald Clyborne, who was like the first butcher in Chicago. Right. That started some of the, the meat processing in Chicago. He came to Chicago in the 1830s. And so everything was brought in by rail into the stockyards. Bring them in and process them and ship them out. Mm -hmm. It was a big, gigantic cooperative factory. I mean, each packer had their own warehouse, but the common areas where the animals were penned and kept, you know, that was all shared. You're familiar with the term watered stock, right? No, what's the in the well watered stock in the stock market? It's it's a stock that's really doesn't have much value, but has been inflated. Okay. Well, watered stock came from the fact that before they were taken to the packing house, there was always one stop prior to the cows getting there, and what they do is they take them off and they salt them and water them, and they just drink and drink and drink. Make them heavier. Make them heavier. Increase their weight. Yeah. <laughs> right. There was actually a connection from the Illinois Central onto the line that ran to the stockyards. And at one time, before electrification, the IC ran trains to the stockyards for housewives so they could go to the stockyards and buy fresh meat. Oh, oh my goodness, that's fascinating. Yeah, why not? Right. <laughs> I mean, it was before yeah. refrigerated cars. It was people, fresh, all right. 
Yeah, people yeah. were buying canned meat pretty much, and yeah. who knew what was in the can? Yeah, yeah. One of the great changes in the American diet was the refrigerated railroad car, because meats could be shipped fresh, refrigerated, rather than canned. And it made meat much more available to the American public, so more people started eating meat. We did a podcast on the stockyards, and we interviewed Dominic DeSiga, the historian and author. And one of the words Patrick and I learned to make us sound smart was beeves. That's the side of beef that yeah, hang, that, that hangs. Hanging. Yeah. And Dominic told us that they had some problems with the tr trains at first because the weight of these beeves... And these were, you know, huge. Right, huge. Hanging from hooks. Half a cow. Yeah. Right. And so you'd go around a bend or something, and whoa, here comes, you know, here comes Several thousand pounds shifting. And so they had to kind of figure it out. <laughs> it was an unforeseen problem. Right. Chris, back here in the studios, David mentioned the refrigerated boxcar changed our diets. Yes. Yeah. Transport of beef or as we learned from talking to Dominic Pasiga, I think they called them beeves. Right. The first refrigerated boxcar was in 1857. It was a retrofit with bins filled with ice. And then Gustava Swift from, as you mentioned in the podcast, Swift Meatpacking, experimented by moving cut meat in test shipments to New York using a string of 10 boxcars with their doors removed during winter months over the Grand Trunk Railroad. And then Detroit's William Davis patented a refrigerator car that held metal racks and suspended the carcasses above a frozen mixture of ice and salt. And then he sold that in 1868 to George Hammond, a Detroit meat packer, who then transports meat to Boston using Great Lakes ice for cooling. And then finally, Swift saw that the beeves shifting yeah. in 1878 when he hired engineer Andrew Chase to design a well-insulated, ventilated car and position the ice in a compartment on top so that air naturally flowed downward and the meat was packed tightly at the bottom of the car to keep the center of gravity low. So when you went around a curb, you didn't topple the car? Yeah, and as we just had that accident recently where the train derailed. Montana. And cars were off the track. Yeah. You have one car tip over and it often takes others with it. Right, so that was a real problem. So that was an engineering solution that sped up the transport of beeves throughout the United States. Yeah. And like anything, it seems like a simple idea, but then actually pulling it off properly. Trial and error. Takes you know, some takes some work. Don't think about this stuff until you have 40 carcasses swinging in the rail car. Right. Well, we'll get back to the interview. Steel making on South Chicago. I mentioned that earlier that mm -hmm. there was, you know, a lot of trains running to and from South Chicago. And South Chicago, again, the railroads were instrumental in making that between bringing stuff in by boat and shipping products out by rail. It was a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week business. Yeah, because they were running the, the steel mills were running 24 hours yeah. a day typically. Right. Yeah. There's still, right around Riverdale, still a large steel plant mm -hmm. that does cold rolling. Acelerol Mittal. I think they've got bought out now, though. But they do process steel. And one of the most interesting things I've ever seen on the railroad is going by this place when they're dumping slag at night. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Just taking the slag cars out there and just dumping it. And, you know, this red hot slag and glowing lights. And it's yeah, just amazing. At the time, the steel mills in South Chicago were booming. IC has a South Chicago branch that runs down there. Mm-hmm. And they were running trains constantly, 15-minute headways. Well, yeah, and you've got all the shift workers right. coming in and out right. of there. Right, Time. Yeah. The, the railroads created the time zones. There were so many different time zones going on, and, and they couldn't... Well, noon was wherever you were. It was, yeah. was right <laughs> up, uh, above you. That was noon. So a train would leave one place and arrive five hours earlier than another place. Yeah. On November 18th of 1883, the railroads began using a standard time system involving four time zones. Within each zone, all clocks were synchronized, and the railroad industry plan was adopted by much of the country, although the time zone system didn't become official across the U.S. until the passage of the 1918 Standard Time Act, which also established daylight savings time. And the only reason I know the Grand Pacific Hotel is where they met is because there's a plaque down on Jackson list right. that explains this. That's when I first read about right. it. Here in Chicago. In Chicago, okay. yeah. But you can see how like private industry comes up with its own rules. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it's adopted later. Right. It's not the government adopting the rules. Well, the railroads were powerful enough to do that. Right. You know, now they get a lot of blowback. They're not as big as they'd like to believe they are. Because there was a big legislation in Chicago city limits that required the railroads to raise their grades. Right. That actually happened starting in the late 1800s through to the early 1900s. Okay. The railroads either had to lower their tracks below grade or raise them above grade. Right. Because the concern was, of course, here you have all these railroads coming into this busy city and there's all this street traffic. It was carnage. Yeah. It was it was absolute carnage. I mean, people were getting killed left and right. At these train intersections. Could you imagine, could you imagine coming at grade through the whole south side, no. you know, past the north side? Yeah. And I don't think they had in those days they didn't have the crossing guard. No. Mechanisms. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. But, I know like animals would be killed. Well, you know, like the six oh six trail. It was a perfect example. Yeah. That was a line. Trail and- yeah, Milwaukee Road. And I've got this thing from a newspaper here. Would tear up tracks. Threat made at meeting against the St. Paul Road, which was the Milwaukee Road. 5,000 citizens say H.H. Schuster will remove rails if protection against the grade crossing danger is not given in the neighborhood of Humboldt Park Boulevard. Alderman Raymer replies to the sharp criticism of his actions. And then there's Boy injured by train. Otto Schulk, 12 years old, was severely injured while crossing the Milwaukee and St. Paul tracks at Bloomingdale Avenue and Lincoln Street. Yeah. And that was a daily occurrence. Oh, I yeah. Imagine oh, yeah. Multiple. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't like people, the higher ups, cared. Or, no, no, you know, no. Life, life was cheap <laughs> you know. back then, right? <laughs> you know, the, the railroads felt that they were providing a public service to people yeah. and the public be damned if they didn't like it. Yeah, right, right. Just get out of the way. Yeah. There's plenty of customers. It's okay if we kill a few. (laughs) And now there is still a continuing problem with people getting injured by trains, but it's through trespassing or Mm -hmm. ignoring crossing gates. And there's an organization called Lifesaver, and they will come to schools or community groups and give a presentation about railroad safety. Mm -hmm. 
And I tell people, you know, my experience with working with the railroad is people think the railroad is a shortcut, a place to walk their dog. Yeah. Or, you know, kids just like love to walk along. I walked along the tracks when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, I'm imagining that movie Stand By Me. Yeah. Where the kids are walking along the tracks, crossing a long trestle bridge and realize, oh, there's a train coming. And they're, you know, running like hell to try to get to a pace where they can jump off and not fall into whatever ravine is. Well, I, I, I have literally seen that. Yeah. Yeah. I have close calls. But when my car was up to those gates, I always put it in park. I'm like, just in case. I always tell people you should park. And when you stop for a crossing, if you're the first car, park at least a car length back from the crossing. Right. You're not going to get in trouble for like blocking the intersection. No, stop back because you never know what's coming up. I've seen strapping off these trains and his people are standing like right at the gate just waiting for the train to come by and get your head sliced off oh yeah oh my god and they rock too oh yeah well it depends at whatever speed there's a certain speed where you get this harmonic motion in the cars where they rock but then once you get above that speed they kind of settle down Mm -hmm. okay well it was it was at the columbian exposition oh well we got to hear this yeah the uh the illinois central ran a ton of trains. And again, this is steam powered at the time, mm-hmm. a long time before electrification. And they brought engineers from all over the system to come in and work because they were running trains every five minutes. Boom, 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 boom. Out to the fairgrounds. Yeah. And Casey Jones was one of them. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. He was one of them? Yep. That's interesting. Darn. And when they had the Great Railroad Fair, they had a huge parade through downtown for the railroad fair. And his wife was the honorary parade marshal. Just for our listeners, (laughs) just for our listeners, remind us of the the Casey Casey Jones Jones story. Oh, Casey Jones. Yeah, he was a hot runner. (laughs) But they call it the railroad. Be sure to to keep the train on time. And what happened was he was following a freight train that went into a siding. And the freight train didn't clear the siding. And they hit the back of the train. Mm. Told his fireman, Webb Sims, jump. And he jumped, and Casey didn't. Mm. And Casey rode the train to glory. Went down with the ship, so to speak. Yeah, so to speak. Where did this happen? I think it was in Mississippi somewhere. So, Chris, we're back here in the studio again. Just a quick little piece about John Luther Jones. Casey Jones. Right. Driving that train high on cocaine. (laughs) We don't know if that was true or not. That's what Jerry Garcia said. Yes, right. Grateful Dead song. Also, David had said what happened in Mississippi, and I wanted to add a little details that it happened on April 30th, 1900. It was on the Illinois Central Railroad. Okay. And he had already done a shift from Mississippi up to Memphis, Tennessee. The next engineer could not do the trip, and he volunteered. He then hopped on the train, engine number 382, known as the Cannonball, from Memphis back to Jackson running late, approaching Vaughn, Mississippi, at high speed. He was unaware that three trains were occupying the station, one of them broken down and directly in his line. Some claim he ignored the flagman signaling to him, though this person may have been out of sight on a tight bend or obscured by fog. All agreed, however, that Jones managed to avert a potentially disastrous crash through his exceptional skill at slowing the engine and saving the lives of the passengers at the cost of his own. For this, he was immortalized in the traditional song, The Ballad of Casey Jones. That's fascinating. 
And interesting, a, an African-American train worker, Wallace Saunders, who started to sing a song about Casey Jones that then later turned into the various versions that we know now. What's interesting, there's a whole genre of train wreck songs. Really? Back of the old 67, I believe that's a Johnny Cash tune. There's a whole subset of them. Had no idea. So anyway, that's the mortalized Casey Jones. All right, let's get back to our interview. Yeah. So that's his moment of fame in Chicago. Yeah. He was well known at the railroad for bending the rules a bit in terms of speed. You know, if you wanted to make up time, and the railroads were good with this. If you were running late and you wanted to make up time, go yeah. faster. What about like the Pullman strike and what it was like oh. from a conductor's point of view? What happened with Pullman was there was a depression. Pullman cut the wages, but he didn't cut the rents or the cost of goods in his stores. Mm-hmm. So the workers went in to meet with him and say, hey, you know, can you help us in any way? And Pullman basically left town. Goodbye. And so the workers were very upset, and they wanted to go on strike. Eugene Eugene Debs said, hey, you know, guys, don't strike. Please don't strike. Don't do that. And he's a famous union organizer. Right. Well, his group was the American Railway Union, Mm -hmm. nascent union, you know, just started up. The workers went on strike anyways. He said, you know, we can't stand this. So Debs told his guys, look, don't move any trains with Pullman cars on them. Refused to move Pullman trains. So what do the railroads do? They put Pullman cars on all the trains, Mm. including the mail trains. And so the railroad (laughs) workers refused to move any train, and the nation basically ground to a halt. In the meantime, things are getting kind of dicey out in the rest of the labor world. It's depression. People are out of work. They see rich people living in the lap of luxury. So they start agitating for a general strike across the United States. Everybody's going to go on strike, all the workers. Mm -hmm. Well, at this point, the government starts getting nervous, and they decide, you know, hey, we got to stop this, nip this in the bud. So they send troops into Chicago and other places. Well, in Chicago, it had gotten so bad that they were burning railroad cars in the yards. Yeah. Setting fire to cars. I assume mostly Pullman cars. No, freight cars. Oh, freight cars. Okay. Yeah, all everything's wood, too, remember? Yeah, right. The stockyards so, was a, a focal point, too, of a lot of this anarchy. And this had nothing to do with the Pullman workers. I mean, these are peripheral things going on that are going to affect them in the end because yeah. the troops come out and they do battle with the strikers and with the people who are out there doing vandalism. They start shooting people, and eventually the workers say, okay, we'll go back to work, and Pullman says no. You're not going back to work for me. They're all fired. Goodbye. Mm. Locks them out. Locked them out. Right. Hired new workers. And Debs got arrested and imprisoned. Mm-hmm. He was in the jail in Woodstock for a while. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of a dark story. Yeah. You know, again, socialism. The word socialism. The favorite word of anybody who wants to say something bad about anybody who believes in liberal cause or the cause of the general public, socialism. We don't want socialism. Oh, yeah, the connotation's as if it's something terrible. So, but if you look up the definition of yeah. socialism, it's actually, you know, for the welfare of the right. general people, it's quite, you know, benevolent. And so imagine you just shut down the rail system, which is the main way to get things to people. It would start to hit affect everybody. Well, they would put strike breakers 
as engineers on the trains and the workers would stop the trains and drag the guys off and beat them. Yeah. You know, it was serious. It was yeah. serious. It yeah. was close to right. anarchy, like you say. So another aspect of Pullman was the Pullman Porters. Yes. Yeah. Pullman recognized right after the Civil War, all these African-American men were starting to take positions in restaurants as servers and cooks. Mm-hmm. And Pullman decided, well, hey, it would be a good idea for me to hire these guys to work on the trains, too. So the Pullman Porter became a ubiquitous part of rail travel in the United States. And they were governed by very strict rules on how to deal with the traveling public. Most rules of, the, of behavior. And, yeah, and rules of behavior. And, you, know, you know, no touching, no this, no that. We should also say, because these were black men, they were treated as such by uh, a country that was pretty racist. They were universally called George. Yes. You know, after George Pullman, hey, George, come yeah. get my luggage. Hey, George. Yeah. They formed a very strong union. And one of the things that they did was they brought about the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. They carried the, the defender from Chicago down south. So a lot of people got to read what was really going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And they were really black owned newspaper and right. mostly black reporters. Right. And, right. Yeah. And they were very well-respected within their community. I mean, they were well-paid in... Relatively speaking. Relatively speaking, right. and uh, they were respected. There's actually a Pullman Porter Museum in Pullman, mm-hmm. and they invite family members of Pullman Porters to come down and talk about their family members who worked on the railroad. It's quite a, quite a change over the last couple oh, of yeah. years. Oh, yeah. They had built uh, artist loft spaces, Mm-hmm. down there they incorporated two abandoned apartment buildings and then built a new building in between them and uh, renting them as loft spaces to artists and we should mention though the pullman got that uh, national, national Park. monument it's a na- oh, national it's a, monument yeah it's a monument it federal government. 2015 yeah because it was still under the obama administration okay. obama came okay. out for it yeah <laughs> Oh, and cemeteries. Yes, because we're not too far from Rose Hill. Right. Rose Hill had a station. The elevator building is still there, I believe. Oh, I hadn't even thought about having to have a station for a cemetery. But I, Yeah, you're right. I think it is. I think yeah. I've seen it. Yeah, the station's long gone, but the elevator's still there. Okay. And, well, before good roads and everything, the only way to get somebody to a cemetery was via train. Yeah. And the entourage. Right. And then people would travel out there to visit their dearly bereaved, and they'd spend the day out there. It was it was park-like. It was a place to have a picnic. Mm-hmm. So there were a number of, like in my area, Mount Greenwood uh, Cemetery was serviced by the uh, Grand Trunk Railroad. Yeah. Wow. Actually, quite efficient way to get a group together to go to a funeral. And the elevated had funeral cars. Now, so, that, that I didn't know. Yeah, they did. Wow. Yeah, ah. out west, to go west along there, the line. Oh, okay. There are cemeteries out that way. Yeah, I'm thinking of the martyrs of the Haymarket. I think that's how they got... Yeah. That was 1886, is that right? Yeah. Well, the, the executions were oh. a year later. They had one of the largest parades in history was the funeral for those martyrs. And they. you're right, they did take the, the west... 
Casper or whatever. Out, it's the out. one that runs to the Eisenhower, middle of the Eisenhower. Oh, okay. That's right, and I think it, it was out to Maywood or something. Yeah, and I, I think they might have gone out on the B&O because the B&O had a station out there. Right, right. Right at the cemetery. Wow. Well, that's these are very practical matters, right? Yeah. I mean, how are you going to deal with this? You don't have a car. Right, right. right. Amazing. And railroads are all about efficiency, right? Yeah, they are. If and I money. <laughs> So I want to talk a little bit about Sam Insel. Oh, yeah. Sam Insel. Sam Insel had his traction empire. He controlled ComEd, People's Gas, and uh, the Northern Indiana Public Service Company, but he also had a traction empire. He had the uh, Chicago North Shore and Milwaukee Railroad, Mm -hmm. the Chicago Aurora and Elgin, and I believe the South Shore as well. And uh, he was an innovator, but he also probably got a little too high, a little too big for his britches, and people were ready to bring him down. So when the Great Depression hit, his uh, holding company, Empire, collapsed. Mm -hmm. And he was accused of profiting personally from selling worthless stock to unsuspecting investors who trusted him because of his position and reputation. They had a seven-week trial, and he and 16 co-defendants were acquitted of all charges after only two hours of jury deliberation. So Insel died in Paris on a subway platform, penniless. Now I remember that story, and I didn't realize it was Insel. Yeah. Laid and low. he was a Chicagoan, yeah. right? From my little bit of understanding of the railroad history is that it started piecemeal, where there were all these short lines, yeah. and then they got consolidated, and these traction or the, the railroad barons wanted to make these big, long, and they wanted to have it start to finish the whole system. And now we're almost going backwards where it's now breaking up. We're having more of these short lines. Yeah. And then just the few long runs that are left are held by the large corporations. Yeah. The early history of railroading is basically speculation. Everybody wanted to build a railroad. Mm-hmm. They'd go out, they'd sell stock. And in most cases, it was worthless stock. You know, they'd never end up building the railroad. Yeah. And those that were built, they were short. And then, like you say, the rail barons would see an opportunity to buy that and expand their system. Mm-hmm. And that's true of the New York Central, the Pennsylvania, and all those historic railroads were built out of the pieces of other railroads. Did you know about the removal of the railroad out of Midway Airport? Yeah, it used to run down the middle of Midway. Yeah, 59th Street, yeah. Which is fine for... 20 some years because they were only using that other part by Cicero and 16th right. Street. And then obviously when airplanes got bigger, they needed more runway. But then they ran into the problem. How do you remove a railroad? So they had to get... That's still in operation. It's still right? in operation, I yeah. believe. Is that the Indiana Belt Railway? Yeah, it's the Belt. So as I understand it, they had to go to Congress and Congress had to authorize the removal of that line because they have a perpetual... Right. Right away, you know, even yeah. up. With any railroad abandonment, anytime you abandon a stretch of railroad, you have first have to go to Congress, and then they have to go out and ask people, well, what do you think about this? You know, should we get rid of it? Shouldn't we? As, you know. Now, I've always been wary of the timing on this because as soon as they removed that line, within, I don't know, nine months, Pearl Harbor happened, <laughs> and that airport was ready to go. I don't know, maybe they felt there was something in the air. <laughs> we got to get these bigger ships, these bombers across the country. No, but- I, I think I think it was just that they wanted to expand the airport mm-hmm. and they needed to move the railroad. I actually have run trains, freight trains through that 
bypass on Archer Avenue there. Yeah. Yeah, boy, you must be beloved by the people that are sitting there because those are some long-ass trains. I have sat there for at least a half hour yeah. on some of those trains because sometimes they would stop. Sometimes they go backwards. Yeah. I don't know what that was. Like. So just to describe for those people that don't know Midway Airport and that history, Chris, one square post, mile. post one square mile, yeah. and, and this parcel of land was cut right in half with the railroad line in the middle? The, originally, the land was owned by the Board of Education. And the reason that the city leased it was because by the time they got interested in aviation, all the land had been gobbled up around Chicago. Mm-hmm. And that was the only one that they could get their hands on. So they leased it, and then that Indiana Belt uh, railway track was there along 59th Street. Well, I believe the original line ran directly east-west through the property. That's right. East-west, east okay, yeah. not north-south. Right. Okay. And I'm, I'm thinking when they when they moved it, they literally moved it to like where Archer Avenue is. Okay. And then it just kind of loops around. But if you look at it on, on Google Maps, yeah. you look at the airport, there's a, a park, and you can see where the bed of the tracks was because you can just, vertical lines, horizontal lines are easy to see. On Google I mean, Maps. Your, your eyes just pick them up, and you can see the phantom tracks still interesting yeah and it's fascinating that line connects with clearing yard and clearing yard was the first yard where all the railroads brought their cars into one yard to be cleared okay and that's where the word clearing comes from and it's a huge yard i mean it's immense i'm sorry by clearing what do you mean bringing cars to be parceled out you know you bring in a long train the trains have to be cut up Mm-hmm. Either they're sent on to another destination or they stay in the metropolitan area and they're delivered to base to industries and stuff. Okay. So the, the idea was that all the railroads would bring their cars into one location. Yeah. And the belt, which was served kind of as a, uh, a railroad that worked with all the other railroads. And I think that the belt is actually owned by three or four different railroads. And it interconnects with their lines. Interconnects with their lines. And kind of loops around right. parts of the city. Right. So these are the, they service the, the main trains. These belt, yeah. yeah, the belt yeah. railroad. Right. And I think you're going to describe what that clearing yard looked like. And If you get up on one of the bridges that goes over it and look east or west, it's like a lot of tracks, a lot of cars. You can sort of get an idea for it if you go to O'Hare and you're on 294 and you're crossing over Mannheim. Mm-hmm. And there's a, another rail yard. Yeah, that's Proviso. And boy, it just it looks like a like talking about a train set. It looks like a train set. Yeah, because I'm imagining if you've got a train car or a couple train cars in the middle of a long line and you have to switch those out to get to another train, that's quite a process. Right. With a lot of parallel tracks and switches up and back and up and back and and then you can get the cars sorted. And I think clearing is one of the a few remaining hump yards in the city. Okay. Where they push the cars up a hill and then oh. they basically have electric switches and they have a guy in a tower that sits oh. there and routes the cars to different tracks. To use gravity to, right, oh, right. very clever. Like when, right. I fr- when I first started working at the railroad, I worked out at Proviso Yards and I worked uh, at the top of the hump as a pin puller. Okay. You know, they give you a that guy, sounds a little dicey. Guy in a loudspeaker goes, okay, let four go, you know, so you let four cars go and pull the uncoupling lever, pull the pin, and boop, away they go. And yeah. You better get out of there, right? No, you're off to the side. Okay. I mean, okay. 
but <laughs> I hated that job. <laughs> it still sounds a little, you know, it's, that could be dangerous. Unnerving, yeah. Grunts, right? that was yeah, right, first. right. But that gravity thing sounds amazing. I've actually seen that on TV. I've seen it's pretty cool. They tore the hump down at Proviso Yard. If you were in a time machine. Oh, Chris's favorite question for our <laughs> historian. If you could go back in a time machine to Chicago, when would you go and what would you see? <sighs> Probably right around World War II. Oh. Because the railroads really bloomed. With the introduction of the automobile, obviously passenger service was dropping off. But when the war started and the restrictions on rubber and fuel came, everybody started taking the train. And they were moving commodities left and right. All the freight and personnel and right. everything. And actually, that's what hurt the railroads in the end because they were unable to really fix their infrastructure up during the war mm. and they just worked everything to death yeah and then after the war there was just no money you know they couldn't recoup it trucks started picking up all the freight traffic and yeah. uh repair to the lines right. that had been used and right and run and run right the passenger uh service fell off eventually it was a fascinating time well yeah. i'm imagining now as we talk about what chicago would have been like in the 1940s and and during world war ii is that this is the height of the tail end of the industrial revolution where this is a manufacturing economy. Right. If there was a pandemic, you couldn't work from home. Unless, commute from, to the stockyards. Unless you were some very wealthy industrialist. Right. And even then, all the actions going on on the shop floor or at the offices of the manufacturing plant. And there was all kinds of small manufacturers. Ravenswood right here, which is just east of us, all manufacturing, you know, buildings right along here, small, light industrial. Well, then there was Sears on, yeah. on the west side. Right, over in Holman. Sears and then Montgomery Wards with their warehouse along the river. That's right. All that stuff moved in and out by rail. And those were the Amazons of, of their day. Right. Yeah. And uh, by catalog. The, the Railway yeah. Express was uh, something like UPS or Amazon, everything. All the small package items were moved by railway express company yeah truck would pick it up deliver it to your doorstep there was a huge warehouse uh south on uh canal street that yeah. railway express uh traffic moved in and out of i mean it kind of i mean i'm just thinking that's just 70 80 years ago yeah i mean it's, it's, it's a just lifetime a couple of you know a couple generations and how much chicago has changed one of the interesting things about world war ii was with the nazis sinking tankers off the east coast they started switching moving oil by rail. And they were just trained solid tank cars rolling around. So let me ask you, in your time machine in World War II in Chicago, let's place you someplace in Chicago, whether it's a rail yard or a passenger station. What would we see and what would we hear? What would we smell? <laughs> a lot of smoke, a lot of smoke, yeah. I might want to work on, on my old line where I worked at Metro, the electric line. Okay. Oh. Working on those old green Pullmans. Okay. Now describe the green Pullmans. They were uh, single level cars, passenger cars, 
some of them were motorized, some of them were just trailers, yeah. and they were wicker seats. Oh, wow. And the joke was you always knew a girl from the south side because you could see the imprint of the wicker seats <laughs> on her legs. <laughs> Hey, that broad's from the south yeah. side. Look at her yeah. dress. Oh, gosh. <laughs> we're we're going to get into big trouble here if we go much further with that one, but that's interesting. And then Pullman was booming. Oh, and then the you know that whole manufacturing district then on the on the south side there would, would have been at its height. Right. Right there along Pershing Road. Stockyards were going. Yeah. Living cities historians. The supremacy of the diesel. Electromotive, which was a division of General Motors, built a plant out in LaGrange, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And basically their diesel locomotive was the final nail in the coffin of the steam locomotive. It was a mass produced, easy to operate, easy to maintain piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. And with steam locomotives, if you put more than one steam locomotive on a train for reasons of tonnage, you'd have to have another crew on that local second locomotive, shoveling in the coal, operating locomotive with the diesel and multiple unit control. It's just one diesel. And they didn't have to stop for water. They didn't have to stop for coal. So all these things the railroads were able to get rid of. Mm-hmm. It really did change. A lot of the older engineers are like, I'm never going to run on those. But they did anyways. And then when they did, they're like, hey, I'm not getting dirty. I'm not, you know. Originally, the fireman's job was to go back in the engine room and check everything and make sure it was all okay. And it was, you know. Mm -hmm. They ran like sewing machines. They were just perfect, Mm. perfect. My hat's off to the designer of the diesel. It's just the most efficient machine I can imagine. I mean, the diesel locomotive, creates electricity through a generator and that electricity is used for the wheels it's used for the fan cooling system it's used for the pumps to run it all on it yeah it's just it's just great and what kind of range do those you got you got the tanks hold a lot of fuel you can go along you probably go across the country on one of those without refueling historians wow. wow. 1948, the 100th anniversary of the first run of the Pioneer. Mm-hmm. And they had the Great Chicago Railroad Fair was held on the former World's Fairgrounds. Okay, 1933? Yeah. yeah. It was only supposed to run for a year, but it was so popular they extended it into 1949. They had the Chicago Railroad Fair. Down in McCormick Place. Yeah, where yeah. McCormick Place is. And Walt Disney came. Walt Disney came. He yeah. actually acted in one of the skits Oh, wow. Yeah. And his the uh, railroad fair was sort of his inroad into trains, and that's why the train showed up at Disney, Disneyland. Oh, my goodness, because that was less than 10 years later, 1955. Right. He came with an animator by the name of Ward Kimball, okay. and Ward Kimball is a big model railroad enthusiast. Oh, okay. So that between the two of them, they, they thought up this, you know, Disneyland Railroad. And that's a great train at yeah, the old, right the old is, Disneyland. Is, yeah. That's really... And I call this sort of like the swan song of railroads in the United States, because after this point, it's all downhill. Oh, that's hurrah. Yeah. It's just, you know, they, they were putting on a good show, showing all their new equipment. 
diesels were coming into their own finally. Uh, railroads were, were retiring steam locomotives left and right and dieselizing. Now, when the steam locomotives disappeared, so did all the jobs that went along with maintaining steam locomotives. And they were maintained constantly, every day. Wow. Every day they were brought in, they were greased, they had cold, cold up, made sure everything was okay with them. And they also had periodic points where they would basically break them all down. They'd break the locomotive down into its component parts, rebuild. repair what needed to be re repaired and rebuild it. Boilers especially yeah. would have to be reflued. Well, and you, you don't want a boiler exploding. No. That, no. I mean, that would happen with the tugboats on the Chicago River oftentimes and created yeah. some real, some deaths and serious incidents. Actually, there was an incident at the Well Street Station mm -hmm. when their powerhouse blew up. When a train was leaving the station, killed a bunch of people. Oh, my God. And part of that ordinance that brought about the electrification of the IC was supposed to be extended to all the railroads. Every railroad within the city limits of Chicago was supposed to be electrified. And at the end of the city limits, they were going to build yards mm -hmm. where the electric locomotives would be taken off and steam locomotives would be put on. Wow. And the only thing that stopped it was diesel locomotives. When the diesel locomotives showed up, they said, oh, this is nice. There's no pollution. <laughs> but relatively speaking. It's small particulate matter, but. Relatively speaking, it was a big improvement. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and then in the 50s, Eisenhower comes up and starts to put in place right. the interstate highway, highway system. The, and Amer that's, the American Autobahn. Yes. And that was basically as a reaction to like. Cold War nuclear right. attack. It was a way of exiting right. the cities. Mm -hmm. Right. And they wanted to move military personnel and material quickly is, across the country. And it's stealthier by truck than it is on a train. Right. right. So that's probably the strategic idea behind that. The mail came off the trains, which really was the death knell of passenger trains because uh. the mail underwrote the whole shebang. Yeah. Back here in the studios. So, Patrick, as I understand it, the mail went from the trains to the trucks in 1977, which was a big change, because up until that time, the trains carried the mail, and they even had sorters on the trains in the middle of the night sorting. And that helped cover some of their fixed costs of running the trains. Right. Paying the freight, so to speak. Right. And by the way, just as an aside, the early days of aviation, it was the mail that paid the freight, too. Ah. Passengers did not pay the freight until President Roosevelt forced the airlines to take on passengers by lowering the rate at which the mail was paid. Wow. Forced their hand. You hear about yeah. Fly the Friendly Skies? They weren't that friendly to passengers. <laughs> They're friendly to mail because yeah. mail sat there, didn't complain, and didn't throw up in a storm or whatever. So that's an important feature in the history of commercial aviation. So covering both operating costs for the trains and the airlines. Yes. Interesting. Follow that, the money, Patrick. Yeah, right. And that would be a big hit financially to the trains in 77 when that yeah. came off and went to trucks. Absolutely. All right. Great. Back to David and our interview. Everything's switching to containers on flat cars. Yeah. More and more. The railroads are getting away from individual boxcar freight and they're moving towards either bulk freight or container freight. Yeah. And 
right now, a lot of the larger railroads are getting rid of their trackage, selling it off to short lines and letting the short lines do the work of delivering what customers still get materials rail, by rail. Like lumber yards. Yeah, or they just like that. want a train to go from point A to point B, and that's it. Okay. They're so, taking the easy route stuff. And, and, and if, if you notice, if you're stuck at a crossing these days, you notice the trains are longer. Oh, They're yeah. much longer. They have slave units in the middle of the train and they have slave units on the back of the train. The engineer controls those. Yeah. So a long train like that, there's a lot of dynamics in it. It's like a slinky toy, I tell people. If oh. you're operating a freight train, you can actually feel the shove and the pull of the cars behind you. So hmm. it takes a deft hand. Yeah, yeah. You have those amazing diesel electric motors, so you can just, on a dime, you can reverse or go forward. Just instant power, right? Well, <laughs> got to stop before you go backwards. Well, I mean, compared to your car. Oh, yeah, yeah. sure. You know, right. You have all that currents. Uh, the newer diesels, yeah, they're all AC traction motors. So, yeah, it's instantaneous. Yeah, so if, if you got a mile-long train and you got all that dynamic power, boom, you can... Yeah. Are there any roundhouses still in the area? Uh, yeah, there. I believe there's one at Calumet Yard, NS. Yeah. They mostly did away with them. They were fine for steam locomotives, but nowadays, you know, diesels are serviced in linear facilities. You have pits, really long. And, yeah, long. You have uh, drop pits, and mm -hmm. so it's much easier to do that now. Metro has a number of service facilities. Mm -hmm. Western Avenue, there's a big coach yard and diesel facility. If you're familiar with the tracks that go over Western Avenue around Grand Avenue. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's a big viaduct there. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's where the Milwaukee Road branches off in the Northwestern. Now Union Pacific goes west. Okay. And then beyond that, there's a yard. And then the UP has their coach yard there for their uh, suburban service. Okay. Now... At one time, there was a coach yard where the Tribune plant currently is, the uh, Freedom. Oh, right on the North Freedom Branch Center. There. Yeah, Chicago called Erie Street Coach Yard, and it was huge. Yeah, wow. Like, there well, were yards all over the city. The city has changed over the decades. All over the city, yards, yeah. yards everywhere. Little yards, big yards. Now it's all real estate. Yeah, now it's all real estate. The railroads changed neighborhoods in the city. People were constantly moving away from the hustle and bustle of the city. Mm -hmm. But if they moved along the railroad lines, it would just come back. It to just them. follow them. And a perfect example is Englewood. It was originally known as Junction Grove. Mm -hmm. And it was like a very rural area in the city. And then the Rock Island came through. And then the Pennsylvania Railroad came through. And then the industry started to sprout up. And there were two Englewood stations. There was Englewood and Little Englewood. Okay. And Little Englewood was further west along 63rd Street, and there was a huge shopping district that grew up along yes, there. Yes, my parents used to go there. It was and, big. Right. On Halstead, right? Right. And that's all gone. That was, There was like a Sears. And, and right. Big theater over there, too. Yeah. It disappeared. Did you ever run trains on those rail yards through Englewood? Yeah. Yeah, there's a, like 12 tracks or something? Yeah. My dad grew up around there. Okay. And he remembers that, you know, as, as kids, they used to play in the tracks, which wasn't such a great idea. <laughs> the neighborhood I live in, Beverly Hills Morgan Park, probably it's the last, really last neighborhood going south out of the city. And it still retains 
a lot of its original suburban charm, but one of the reasons it does is the tracks were not elevated or depressed. So they're at grade level. We have historic train stations. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, the one by my house burned down. So could, yeah, because otherwise then that creates sort of this barrier, or this wall, or a crevasse right, right, that, that right. divides. Neighborhoods. And even the tracks do. I mean, I live yeah. on one side of the tracks, and on the other side of the tracks, the neighborhood yeah. is a bit rougher. Yeah, yeah. The Ravenswood line does that a little bit in this neighborhood because it, it's a raised berm, and not every street goes underneath the tracks. And a lot of the neighborhoods that had train stations, some of the train stations were extremely ornate. Mm. I mean, the Hyde Park station was absolutely massive. But again, once they elevated the tracks, it disappeared. I don't know, you're familiar with Clybourne, the Clybourne area where the two trains, there was this great station there designed by two notable architects. Just a beautiful, big, tall tower. Mm. Beautiful station, gone. Mm. Now the railroads, they figured... With the passenger service slowly diminishing, even commuter service was was diminishing, why have a big building? Why spend all this money? Why pay taxes? You know, tear it down. And the same is true of all the downtown stations. The big, beautiful downtown stations were tax burdens to the railroad. I think the most famous example is Grand Central Station. People don't realize Chicago had a Grand Central Station. It was owned by the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Where was it located? It was located on Van Buren Street, right along the river. Okay. Yeah, you know where that Goldberg building is? Yeah. The marina? Yeah. Yeah. River City? Yes, Yes. River City. Yeah, you can still see, I think one of the ramps for the station is still there. Okay. The stonework. Okay. And it's finally being redeveloped into a a new neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Designed by the same guy who did Pullman. Mm. Oh. It was a gorgeous building. Unfortunately, the railroads that used it didn't have a lot of passengers to begin with. And when Amtrak took over, the station was abandoned. It sat abandoned for about 10 years, and then the B&O said, tear it down. You know, this is before the time when you might have thought, hey, you know what, maybe we should save this building. This could be a really nice entryway to a new area. Well, they just tore it all down. So I'm just thinking then railroad stations were really kind of the cathedrals or monuments yes. to the railroads yes. themselves. Yes. And, and that was by design, right? Because yes. that would attract passengers to want to well, come and get on the rail. they want to impress people. They right? want, you know, here we are, we're the most wonderful business in the world. Yeah. And they were little cities in themselves. I was involved in the attempt to uh, landmark the Northwestern Station. Oh. And did a lot of research on that. And that was a place where a lot of immigrants went off to the West. Mm-hmm. And they had immigrant rooms. They had special areas for the immigrants. Now, the railroad portrayed it as being very noble, but it was basically, hey, let's not let these stinky people in with our regular passengers. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> but when they tore the station down, it was so well built that the original demolition contractor went out of business trying to take it down. Oh, my God. <laughs> they were just banging those balls against the floor, and it wasn't going anywhere. Wow. They had just laid rails, one on top of the other, and then cement. It was the Illinois Central Central Station, Grand Central. There was the Northwestern Station. Union Station still exists. Yeah. A guy named Fred Ash wrote a wonderful, wonderful book on Union Station. Let's get another chat. If you're interested in in learning a little bit about how the city that works really does work. Yeah. And the amount of energy that was involved in getting that train station built 
essentially it affected a huge part of the city. The old Union Station, when it was built, was beautiful, but it became to be a much reviled building. And the area around Union Station was rough and tumble. Yeah, oh yeah. A lot of bars, a lot of cheap hotels. Yep. There's a Greyhound Station not too far from there that kind of has a very, I don't know, dystopian feel to yeah. it. Uh, and it's a lot of wide, large, concrete kind of wastelands around there. Yeah. It really had that feel at times. Dearborn Station still exists, but is a entryway to the Dearborn Park neighborhood. Yeah, that's at least been redeveloped. And, right. And it's a pretty building. It was actually a much prettier building than it had a fire that destroyed this like Flemish tower on mm. top of the original tower, big, we call it like a tent-like shape. Uh-huh. You know, and then the roofs, we had, they had mansard roofs on, on the station, all mm. that burned. And they just tore it all off and they saved the station at least. Yeah. Didn't the Illinois Central have a station at 63rd Street mm. where a lot of African-Americans from the deep south came up uh, Illinois Central right. to Chicago? Well, migration. 63rd was also the location of the IC office building. Oh, okay. And the railroads tended to move their payroll departments away from the main station. And less likely to get robbed or less likely to get robbed. And plus the employees were less likely to be showing up asking for their check. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Complaining, I got underpaid. Right, right. So they have to go out to 63rd Street to complain. Right. So if they're going to do a protest. So, so where that the church is now? Yeah. Uh, that was the site of the office building. I think it was only torn down in the 70s, right? Yeah, right. There's still a stop there on the suburban line, okay. but there was also a stop there on the, on the main line for mainline passengers. At Union Station, they're talk, talking about building a skyscraper over it. or uh, Next to it. Originally, they were going to build one over it. Okay. They were going to keep the center part of it, the head house, the waiting room, and they were going to build on either side of that. But there was such a, the plan that they proposed was so bad. I mean, I don't think anybody liked it. I mean, I would, if I would have been an architect, I would have been embarrassed to present that because it was really ugly. So I think they're going to do something. They're going to build something, but it's going to be, it can't be seen from the street level. But they're building in a skyscraper next to it. Where, they're, where the parking lot used to be. Okay. And that's Amtrak's making a fortune off of that. They owned all that land. Oh, okay. You know, the that Union Station was owned by four railroads, and each one slowly but surely gave up their share, and then Amtrak finally became owner. And Amtrak owns a lot of property around the country. Well, that's the only way Amtrak's going to ever make any money. They've always lost money. They probably still won't cover all the... Long term. But it's it's funny. true of any passenger system anywhere in the world. Yeah. They're not money makers. They're right. supported by government. And it's because it's a public utility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and roads are the same thing. You know, otherwise we'd have toll roads everywhere to try to pay for them. Right. We just think of those as a public good. Right. And if we looked at our railroads the same way, we'd have a much different infrastructure. Because it's... it's yeah, that's good Well, point. it's the same with airports. The federal government supports the airlines by yeah. building airports and having air traffic control. Right. And the barge system, you know, they have canals and, mm -hmm. you know, the railroads are really at a disadvantage in terms of their competitors. Yeah. Because their competitors receive a lot more 
federal money. Mm-hmm. You know, they, like rail projects around Chicago will get federal money. But there's only so much money in the pool to do yeah. stuff. And the city benefited much from, from the railroads, obviously. We were called the railroad capital of America. Mm-hmm. I mean, every almost every train on every line ran into Chicago for some reason or another. And there, obviously there were lines that ran south. And But as an industrial city, we really did have a web of rails running into the city. And we influenced a lot of the nation, too. Look at the Montgomery Wards and Sears. You know, and located to Chicago, because right? Of the railroads. Right, and the the fingers of Chicago stretch far and wide. Same thing for uh, International Harvester, which was the McCormick right Reaver Works, right, came to Chicago because of the railroad system right. primarily. Well, David, it's, thank you very much for coming oh, on. Thank you on the Windy City Historians. It's been a great conversation. Absolutely. And I hope to have this out out soon. Yes, thank you, and thanks for your hard work on. Oh, on thanks. This. Yeah. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. One of my favorite Pullman stories, I don't know, it's probably apocryphal. Supposedly these kids were playing baseball game and this was like in Maine and a Pullman Palace car comes by and there's one of the Pullman guys is standing out on the back of the train and someone hit a home run and the Pullman porter catches the ball. <laughs> and they're like, hey, throw it back, throw it back. And he doesn't. And they're all cursing and whatnot. And then a week or so goes by, kids are playing their, their game. Here comes that same train. And here comes the Pullman porter and he has the ball and he throws it to him. It's signed by Babe Ruth. <laughs> I mean, because these guys. That's a good story. <laughs> well, and the baseball everybody. teams would have pl- traveled by train. They traveled by train. Yeah. Oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> I, I, I hope that's true. I hope it's true, too. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Yeah. If you do learn anything, let us know. You know we where, can I, you add know where it I heard the... that? The, the guy that wrote the Pullman Porter book, uh-huh. he was giving a talk on C-SPAN, and he told that mm. story. So I don't know if it's in his book, but it's a great one. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.